Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. It's your homie Josie once again. Spencer's not here, but that's okay because she listens every week uh, just to make sure that I don't completely deal real things um, or slander her name or whatever she's worried about. I don't know if she's worried, whatever. But anyways, today we are joined by our new friend, Rebecca Drumsta, who is a writer, consultant, and coach for those who have experienced religious trauma and abuse. Um, wow, you're on the perfect podcast, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking me to come on. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, we love talking to people who are smarter than us and who know more than us. And Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, I mean, you definitely know more about the nitty gritty of religious trauma. I tend to try not to think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only in therapy do I process. But anyways, before we get into, uh, you know, the information, the professional side of things. Okay. Tell us a little bit about you and your story and your background with religion. Um, how long is the podcast? Like, <laughs> uh, 20 years. <laughs> 20, okay. I can talk for two hours and then we can get into other stuff. Oh, perfect. Now, um, <laughs> so I frequently will tell people that four different religious cults impacted the foundation of my life. Uh, four. Uh, four. <laughs> so I'm quite passionate about yeah. this space. And so some of my first memories ever of church, of religion, of um, you know, spiritual spiritual things. Um, one of them is when a good family friend um of my fam of my parents was murdered because he had removed his family from a Mormon sect in Mexico and he'd come and he had come and joined this Christian church. He'd converted to Christianity. He had had brought all the children and his wife and um, it was an atonement killing because he refused to take the family and the children back to that Mormon sect. Um, That same church, several, you know, not, I don't know the timeline. I'm not worried about that at the moment, but, um, not long after all that happened, my family left that church where we were, the pastor at that church would divide people in the service and say, if you are either with me or you're against me, if you're against me as the leader of this church, you will be excommunicated. No one can talk to you anymore. Um, he would split the church up on a regular basis in that way, dividing even my own extended family and my parents over this. So, but when my family did leave that church, another memory I have is this little girl on the playground throwing sand in my eyes, telling me that my family was going to hell and that we were bad, evil, wicked, horrible people that we could never talk to again because we were leaving that church. Oh my God. Um, so this is before I'm six. Um, and Moving from there, my family went to what they felt was a safe, healthier, 
world, um, which was straight into an independent fundamental Baptist church. Mm. And if you've watched, you know, anything like from preacher boys or just watch the news in general, you've seen a lot of IFB pastors mm-hmm. and communities really getting a lot of hot water. That's just from the practices they allowed, not even down to their theologies and doctrines and all of that. I was also homeschooled and raised inside of Bill Gothard's homeschool program oh, no! called Institute and Basic Life Principles, um, or in the past was Institute and Basic Youth Conflicts. And so those are the four religious cults that before I was out of elementary school, before I was barely out of diapers had already started influencing my world. And so it has been a massive recovery for me. Um, I, it was the birth of my daughter that really pitched me into what people are now calling faith deconstruction. I'd lived overseas. I'd seen, seen things done differently in the Christian world. Um, I was your whole, Oh, you know, forgive me, colonizing missionary girl. Mm. Um, cause I didn't know better. That's what I'd been taught. That's what I knew. And I loved people and I loved Jesus. And, um, I look back now and go, Oh man, I did that. Didn't I? Um, but I had started seeing things were different there. People, um, had different sets of standards and beliefs and convictions. And, um, so I got married and when I had my daughter, it was a very traumatic birth and I ended up like putting puzzle pieces together was I'm, as I'm laying in bed with a newborn and saying, God, where were you? You abandoned me. Do you even exist? I felt like this traumatic birth where I I tried to have a home birth because that's what good little Christian mommies do. Yeah. And then that ended up in the hospital, ended up with a C-section where I felt them cut me open. And it was just so long, so traumatic. I felt like there must have been some sin that I was paying for because of how painful it was, how horrible the experience was. And um, I learned later that it was literally trauma that my body could not let go it could not release. It was a trauma response is what my body was having. Cause there was no, there's no medical reason why I had such a complicated birth. Mm. Um, it lasted way too long hours and hours and days and days. Um, and so that's where my deconstruction journey began, but there was no vocabulary. There were no support groups. There was no website I could find and you could Google I'm questioning my faith. And it was always, you know, the spiritual bypassing, read your Bible more, pray more, go talk to your pastor. I couldn't find anything. And so I was on this journey alone as a first time mom with a newborn, um, having been, you know, having a degree and, you know, from a Christian college and having, you know, all of these things and only worked in ministry or churches. And, um, how do you pivot? How do you change? What am I supposed to change? Who can I trust? Um, what's wrong with me? Is this my problem? Does God exist? You know, all of those things. So that's kind of, kind of the quick, you know, eight minute version of a little bit of my past and bringing me into the deconstruction space. Um, and then, yeah, after that, 
I fumbled along by myself. I didn't have anybody to help me. I had to read the books and figure things out for myself. And I would go to therapy and my therapist would be like, you know, we don't know how to help you. You know, if there's something specific, oh, if it's anxiety, we can do with that. Oh, if it's whatever. But when I'm overcoming all of this religious trauma, that wasn't even a term they knew all of the, the spiritual abuse and, um, the mind control, the manipulation, all of those things, nobody knew exactly how to help me. They could help me with elements. Mm -hmm. Um, so I started having to be my own therapist and, um, years later after all of this, that's what drew me into, um, how can I take what I've learned personally, my background with my, my own lived experiences, um, my own interest in counseling and mental health took me into getting more training, getting certified as a professional life coach and now working with individuals who had similar experiences to my own. Oh my gosh. At what point did this become like passion project is not a big enough word, but at what point was this like your passion? Like when did you start doing it professionally, I guess? You know, people ask me when it all started and I'm not sure because it seems like every time I would turn around, I mean, I'm sitting at a pool at a public pool and this lady starts telling me her, her church hurt story. And, and I'm like, what, you know, every time I turned around, there was somebody else who was just coming to me and sharing these stories. It's, you know, they were finding me and, um, I guess it was five years ago that I would officially say that's kind of when I began doing this. I didn't really, you know, advertise it. It's just people who found me and who knew my background and, um, the passion behind all of it. Um, I don't want this to happen to somebody again. It doesn't have to happen. Mm, mm -hmm. Being a mom, I want to create a safe place in the world for my child. I want to say that when I look back on my life, I know kind of going around the internet is this concept of like be a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to do that. I want to know that I left an impact on the world saying that this way Christianity and religion has been done is not okay. This is not safe. This is not the type of religious experiences I want for my own children or grandchildren. And so being a new mom, raising a daughter, that's kind of where a lot of the passion behind it came in because number one, I don't want this. I don't want her to have to experience the things that I experienced because she's a woman, because she's, you know, whatever the situation, but then, um, it's for her, for her future. But also I got freaking mad that it kept happening every time I turned around somebody I grew up with, somebody I was meeting on the internet, somebody, and I'm like, nobody's doing anything about this. Mm. And I may not be the most qualified, but I've lived it. So I know the pain. I know the fallout. I know how badly it hurts your immediate and your extended families. I know how it crushes your identity and you don't know who you are. You've been, your identity has been disrupted and you're left saying, you know, who am I? If my identity was in Christ, which is what you're told at church, but the version of Jesus, the version of Christianity you've been handed is toxic. It's abusive. It's controlling. How is that my identity? I'm not those things. Mm. And 
So those are really my two, the two big reasons that pushed me into this was for my for my daughter, for any children that she may have. And I got mad because, and maybe it's the mommy bear still thing still, but somebody has to help. And, um, I am not the most, the most best <laughs> mm -hmm. at these type of things, but I want to help. I'm here. I'm stepping in. And, um, my voice as small as it is, is being heard and I'm helping people. And that's all I really want to do. I just don't want somebody else to be a first time mommy recovering, panicking, you know, freaking out because I'm going to hurt my kid, but I don't know if God exists. Mm. Wow. That is the kind of passion that we like here on this <laughs> podcast. That is what we're all about. And so you took all of this hurt and pain and information and you wrote a book. That's no small thing. And not even like um, just specifically about religious trauma, but about how the family plays into trauma in general, right? Yes. And oh my gosh, as a traumatized human being, God bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what is, um? tell us a little bit about, a, about the book. Okay. Um, well, the book, which if you're listening, you can't see it, but here's what it looks like. It's, beautiful. it's called <laughs> when family hurts and there's a cover, there's, um, a guy and a girl, they're under a rain cloud, but then there's a woman reaching from behind with an umbrella saying, oh. I've, I've been there. I've walked through this journey. There is hope and there is healing here. Let me help you. And so that's what I want the, wanted this book to be was that here, let me help you. Mm. So I wrote when family hurts as as the book that I needed when I was processing and working through my deepest traumas, my deepest personal pain, but also the generational traumas that I was recognizing that kept surfacing mm. in my life and in my, my own parenting and in my marriage and in my friendships and how I was interacting with my in-laws and all of the things. And so I wrote the book um, that I needed because sometimes our, our emotions get so complicated mm -hmm. and so confused. If we go to therapy, we are like, I don't even know what I'm here for right now. I just know I need help. <laughs> yeah. And so this book is a 30 day guide to, and each day has a different topic that you would, that you would cover. It might be breathe flashbacks, disbelief, hypocrisy, abandonment, loss, longing, so each day has a different theme. And then there's a quote, there's a section that I've written, and then there is a challenge for you, something that you are to do today. And then there's self-coaching questions. You ask yourself these questions today, <clears throat> excuse me, and ponder them. Ask yourself, what do I really need? What do I really want? Um, whatever the questions are, really dive in and consider that thing that day. Mm. Um, and then there's a spot at the front for daily check-ins. So you can kind of see your progress. Like, nope, I'm still mad. Nope. It still hurts. Oh, that's why it hurts. I figured that out today. Um, you know, why do I need my mom to accept this, you know, thing about me or why am I so angry at my dad? Um, so you do those daily check-ins. So that's kind of the format of the book. Um, and I, I wanted to create a resource because as I had clients, as I have my own friends and the people I'm interacting with online, I kept hearing the same things. My family, my family, mm. my husband, 
my sister. And um, it's not written specifically, like you said, with um, spiritual abuse or religious trauma wording all in there a little bit, because I also work with a DNA surprise community and there's family secrets that are revealed when you take a DNA test. Mm. And so I, I wrote the book as a resource for both communities because I kept seeing so much overlap. Um, but the same thing is getting back to what do I need for my own healing? And I need to find clarity in my situation. So it all does still apply. Oh my gosh. I'm obsessed because I, <laughs> not only do I have generational trauma for being a person of color in first generation in the United States of America, having gone through the whole immigration court system, that's mm. all, you know, whatever. But I also have this like, really deep religious trauma that is really annoying in the mm -hmm. sense that my grandma converted to like an apostolic church so she wears only skirts doesn't cut her hair doesn't want to make up the whole nine yards and all of her children rebelled some of them are still christian most of them uh some of them are not or like kind of passing or whatever mm -hmm. but there was like that rebellion right and then the next generation come we come and it's this big fucking deal that we rebelled as well that we formulated our own faith in the spirit of what my parents did for example mm -hmm. like my dad wasn't allowed to go to the movie theater as a kid and as soon as he got to the country he does not stop going to you the movies. say that like it's supposed to be weird that was my whole childhood i know <laughs> no movies no pants you know no yep. rock music yeah you're saying that i'm like i'm not surprised yeah i know and <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know and it, it's just like that whole misunderstanding of like you you get it but you don't get it because it's me because it's you yeah. against me now or whatever. I feel like that's more frustrating to me. And it's developed into this whole thing of like, it's unfortunate, but my mother and I don't have a very great relationship as a result. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's fine. I put in a lot of work to maintain the relationship. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty sure she's a narcissist. If she doesn't listen to this and if she does, well, surprise, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um so like dealing with all of that with the religious element added to mm -hmm. it what does like what would the first step for somebody like me be like in a coaching situation mm -hmm. well i would ask you to define rebellion how is your how are you or your family defining rebellion oh my gosh well, in my family, my dad likes to say, you just like to write your own Bible. You just read your own Bible. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. okay, you picking and choosing. That's my rebellion is picking and choosing. Picking and choosing. So have you heard of Steve Hassan's authoritarian control bite model? No. See, this is the information I need in my life. We all need this information. <laughs> I'm trying to find some of my notes. Anyway, um, so authoritarian control shows up in these four areas that he's a, one of the leading cult experts, Steve Hassan, and it is behavior control, information control, mm. thought control, and emotion control. Mm. Mm. So you will know if you were raised in an authoritarian home, went to an authoritarian church, <laughs> work for an authoritarian boss, whatever <laughs> you can apply in many different places, because your behavior, 
you know, all of these things are so neatly controlled. You can only read these books. You can only have these emotions. These are acceptable emotions. These are sinful emotions. Um, you can only have these thoughts, these pure thoughts, mm. impure thoughts are sinful. Go repent, you know? Uh, so all of these things are controlled and controlled and controlled. And so that's why I was asking you what, how are you defining rebellion? Because you, are you rebelling or are you having an expressing freedom of thought and emotion and information? Oh, definitely. You know, and so you're not so much fighting against your parents as you are the system, mm. a belief system. And so it's hard to separate the two because they're so married. They're so blended. Yeah. Um, and the fact is your parents, we never understand that that's I what know. they're operating from. And isn't that just like the hardest part for all of us to come to terms with is that your parents may never change. They nope. may never accept you. Nope. They may never change their mind. Or that they may never understand. That doesn't make it any easier. Right. Which I'm is what my therapist my tells notes. me. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. My there therapist is always telling me, like, they, they may never understand you. And yeah. this is why I'm very much an advocate for keeping the people in your life that deserve to be in your life. I don't care about no blood. I don't care about water. I don't care about any of that. Mm. People that choose to love you are going to choose to love you every day. Like I recently had this spat with my family <laughs> over New Year's Eve and they gave me COVID. Thank you for all of them. But they made light. They're, some of my religious family members in Mexico are anti-COVID and anti-the COVID mm -hmm. vaccine, which is dumb. But I digress. Um, and we all caught it and we were mm -hmm. all passing it around or whatever and they were making fun of it and they were saying like oh well if it's your turn to die it's your turn to die like that's just how mm -hmm. the universe works and i'm standing there a disabled immunocompromised person thinking so i have to die because you don't want to wear your fucking mask <laughs> yeah because you don't want to get tested and as a result people were like really belittling me and disrespecting me not just as like a different a rebel a create my crazy cousin or whatever yeah it was the core of like your life doesn't matter because it's impeding mm -hmm. on mine so i don't care that's mm -hmm. what it felt like right mm -hmm. and god bless my parents they actually were there to defend me um which was very surprising that's good that's nice but I mean, they're very much like, well, you have to forgive and forget and just move on. And I'm like, dad, mm -hmm. I don't think that you realize that I'm pretty done here. I've been made fun of for being a feminist, for being a different type of Christian, for living my life differently. And I can handle all that. I can take a joke. Mm -hmm. I don't care mm -hmm. what people think about me. But to disrespect somebody for something that they cannot control and to say yeah. that they're imply that their life doesn't matter as much as yours does because they're disabled. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty done. Mm. I'll love them from yeah. afar. Wish them all the best. But they obviously yeah. don't love me. So not unconditionally anyway. And mm -hmm. I don't have room to stress over people that don't love me unconditionally. Mm -hmm. So that's why I tell people, if your parents are completely... And I could be wrong, right? I mean, I'm kind of a bit... This is what you're living <laughs> right now. This is yeah. what you're experiencing right now. Yeah, and I mean, I'm all about forgiving and working through the issues. I do the work. Mm -hmm. But at some point, if people aren't working with you, I say, well, 
sayonara well i have two thoughts going like tagging off of that and the first one is estrangement comes with the stigma Mm. and whether it's a cultural thing um you know from your family of origin or it's the country you live in whatever it might be um and it's always seen that if somebody chooses to not talk to their parents or chooses to remove themselves from a family member or the whole family permanently or for a season um the person who's done the walking away is always perceived as the person who has the problem yep well she left the family she walked away from the family and while that can be true that that person has many things that are not healthy and they did make a choice that was not a wise one for lack of better words. Um, I'm finding, especially in this space in the religious trauma, spiritual abuse space, usually the person who has chosen either temporary or permanent estrangement is the one who has done the work who has Mm. tried, who has placed boundaries and had people never, never, never respect those boundaries, who that, that person has tried sometimes for years and at their own detriment, they've allowed themselves to be hurt over and over and over again. Mm. Um, and so when they choose estrangement, the rest of the world just looks at them as though they're the problem Mm. when no, they're actually doing a kindness to themselves to maybe their own children or spouses or the family that they have around them, um, or to themselves are putting their mental and emotional health first. And often that includes your spiritual health. And so that's one aspect to this. But the second one that I've noticed is those raised in church, um, especially from devout religious families, the families, they do not have the tools that they need to manage conflict Mm. while maintaining a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And so the, when you've grown up in church, when your families have gone to church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winning on Saturdays, run VBS, do all the things when you've been so committed, um, your parents, the families have been conditioned to focus on being right. That dogma Mm. that we have the absolute truth or this is the right way. Um, then there's often an obedience. Children obey your parents. Um, you must obey your authorities, whether that's obey the pastor, obey the, you know, whoever is that authority figure, um, for your mother, probably mostly and the children, um, there's that obedience level. And then the conformity, we all have to wear the same clothes, listen to the same types of music. Um, you know, always defer to the higher standard, you know, Mm. I might wear pants, but they don't. So we always wear skirts when we're with them. Um, so that conformity thing instead, so they've been conditioned for those things instead of actually genuinely listening to a person and hearing their hurt, their heart, their perspective. They're so focused on making sure all those other things are in place and in order. And so if you were raised in church now as a person facing healing from religious trauma, um, you actually yours and your family. So your siblings, your parents, um, there may be emotional or mental health neglect. Mm, A lot. Because your parents are being taught this thing, so they can't turn, you know, they're not getting any education on anything around emotional or mental health. So they're not passing it down to you in practice or in word. Um, They might even mock 
mental health professionals. I heard that growing up. Oh yeah. They're, oh, Josie and her therapy. What did your therapist exactly. say about me today? <laughs> yes. So they mock it. The spiritual bypassing again, pray mm. about it. Give it to God. Let's quote scripture. There's nothing too big that you and God can't handle. So it's literally like a road and a freeway that goes over another road. You're bypassing, you're ignoring the underlying core root of mm. a problem, which may be depression, a chemical imbalance, abuse that's never been discussed or revealed. Um, but then there's the faith healing. We just put oil on them and pray and God will heal them. Or we lay hands mm. on them and pray. And so we just pray and pray and pray and have faith that these people will be healed. Um, so those are some of the things that as you're growing up, you might've experienced. So None of that equips parents or grandparents or families for, for managing conflict or having any form of health in their relationships. But now, as you're recovering, um, you, you have religious trauma because mm. you've never... And you have that religious trauma, then there may be a trauma bond, either with your parents, a pastor, the church. And the trauma bond means it's the source of your trauma that you feel an allegiance or a deep emotional connection. Even though you know that was the source, you still mm. feel like you have to be loyal. You have to be whatever. Um, I've coined a term called spiritual identity disruption, where I feel like deconstruction explains the process of dissecting what you believe, but spiritual identity disruption it completely en encapsulates the whole experience. Mm. What happens emotionally, mentally, spiritually, um, relationally. I feel like that term, um, and we're not here to talk about that, but it encapsulates that whole feeling, but you may also distrust mental health professionals because of what you were taught. You might have an inability to recognize your own needs. Mm. You don't know what you need. Um, again, one of the reasons I wrote my book, because I didn't know what I needed or what yeah. I was feeling because I'd never been taught. I, you know, I have raised my daughter very differently from the time she could speak. Okay. Here's pictures of what are you feeling? Are we happy? Are we sad? Are we angry? Are we this? Mm -hmm. well, I've tried to educate her onto those things. We may have imposter syndrome. Mm. You know, I'm not good enough. Who am I? I'm not worthy enough. Codependency is another one. Mm. There's two parts to codependency. And the one is that extreme need to sacrifice. We've been taught die to self, serve others. Oh so you have God, this codependency. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wipe your tears. Um, and then the second one though is taking over, is being too much in control of things, trying to be in charge when you have no place to be in charge of that. Uh, that's that's <laughs> the two sides of codependency. So as you were telling me your story, I'm hearing little bits of all of this that are kind of connected with that. But then again, and I, this does not excuse how you've been treated, how others are treated, but you have to also identify that if you're, you were raised in a highly religious family, going to church all the time, most likely your family does not have what they need. Mm -hmm. Number one, they don't even understand mental health or emotional health. Number two, they may think of it as something that's voodoo or wacko or satanic. Mm. So they've been taught something that's not true. And they also don't have any tools that they need to be able to get through this. So that's a level of empathy that you can have a level of understanding 
Mm. It does not excuse it because they are still adults that are choosing yep. these type of behaviors. They are still choosing to mock or to ignore your requests or your boundaries. Um, but that is the mindset. That's the system that I said earlier is what you're really fighting against more than you're fighting against your mom who in her own way, I'm sure she loves you more than anything, mm. but there's that mentality, that mindset, those teachings that they've absorbed that that's where this stuff is coming from. And you can't yeah. fix their mentality. Yeah. They have to see it and they have to choose it. Yeah. And to the credit of my parents, they, um, because I, I started going to therapy when I was around seven years old because my dad's immigration lawyer was like, if you got a crazy kid, you could probably stay. And he was right. So crazy kid right here. Uh... Um, and by crazy, I mean mm. chronic depression and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So mm -hmm. fun times. So they were, my dad had to be open to it, right? Because of whatever. Yeah. And my dad's is not educated. I mean, he's from a village in Mexico, but he's the smartest person in the whole world. So he like has this weird thing of like gradually, you know, doing things. And my mom, God bless mm -hmm. her heart, not the sharpest tool in the shed, but she listens to my dad. <laughs> Mm -hmm. for better or for worse submission or whatever so it's been an interesting journey to be this like outlandish rebel child who didn't do drugs or drink but just read too many books and didn't clean mm. her room so that was my rebellion right i was messy yeah. and i wasn't you didn't conform i didn't conform to their yeah right so it's an interest it's interesting now to see like the the tone shift especially with my siblings um but the sticking point that always happens is my mom like most mexican mothers unfortunately was very physically abusive growing up hit you out of anger the whole situation mm -hmm. and it always comes up was like well you deserved it sometimes you deserved it sometimes like it was it was your fault or whatever and i remember the day in therapy when my therapist was like you were a child when is it ever okay for somebody for an adult to hit an adult out of anger or whatever so why would it be okay for, why would it be your fault mm -hmm. that an adult lost their shit and hit you to the point of bruised and battered or whatever? Like, yeah. it's never your fault. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was, I would try to make these excuses, right? Like, yeah, I was, mm -hmm. I called her a bitch or yeah, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. But there is no excuse, right? At the end of the day, I was a child and trying to convince mm -hmm. my family of that. Wow. So if your father were to hit your mother that way, he would go to jail. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, in this same type of situation, um, not some crazy, you know, uh, romantic thing. Um, but <laughs> Tinky. Um, we're not getting into that. Uh, but my point is, if he just walked up because he was angry and slaps her across the face or pushes her to the ground or mm -hmm. uses a belt or a stick and whacks her on her backside out of anger because she didn't do what he wanted her to do he could go to jail yep that's actually a really common joke in mexican culture is like hitting each other or men hitting wives and yeah. i mean not that my dad would ever hit my mother my dad's the meekest person in the whole wide world mm. um but i started saying like hit her and watch what's gonna happen to you watch I'll call the cops right now. I don't care. And I started like being really aggressive in a funny way to like match mm -hmm. the vibe. But Trying eventually... to use humor to prove a point right. that nobody's listening to. 
But eventually my dad yeah. stopped making those jokes. So it's weird yeah. how receptive that my parents can be, which is not everybody's experience, right? Yeah. But, and that's mostly to say, like, those are the types of people that are worth yeah. the effort of educating, right? If there's people that are constantly just not, you're hitting mm-hmm. a wall over and over again. And my not yeah. so professional opinion, I feel like you should just drop them, drop them like it's hot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with that, but... I think it is an individual choice. Right. Um, in my perspective, this is my personal perspective, not a professional perspective, because your situation, everybody's situations are different. Right. Um, if there's been abuse, you have no um, responsibility towards the person who's been the abuser. Mm-hmm. Um, that is all grace. That is all love, forgiveness, um, situational Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the types of abuse, the person now, that type of thing. Um, as an adult, if a child, if it's a minor, not out, done. Yep. Um, if it's someone who's older, um, those are those choices that you have to make based on your situation, what's best for you um, in the scenario today. So it gets really tricky because there's not a one size fits all absolute yeah. answer for all of this. Yeah. Um, but what I am seeing are these trends that people who've experienced religious trauma um, and trauma, just kind of getting some definitions. Trauma is essential, essentially like boiling it all the way down um, is a sense of powerlessness mm. where either it's perceived or real, where you have zero power over what is happening to you, what you are witnessing, what you're experiencing, Um, And the longer that sense of powerlessness goes, the deeper and longer lasting that trauma. And so we may not even realize in the moment, I mean, as a six or seven-year-old child, you don't realize you're being traumatized. You can't verbalize the fact that I feel like I have no agency. I feel like no one's listening to my words. No one's hearing what I'm saying. All of this, you know, all these things are happening to me and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm being told that my opinions don't matter. I have to be submissive because I'm a woman. I have to be these things. So we don't even understand what trauma is as a child, as we're experiencing it. But what I'm seeing is with religious trauma um, at home with our families, there's other forms of abuses and traumas that are going hand in hand. Um, And as I'm speaking with clients or, you know, again, talking Zoom calls with groups of people, Um, There's a lot of spiritual abuse Mm -hmm. that goes with the religious trauma. There's sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. physical abuse, um, and educational neglect. Um, There's a lot of homeschool families who they homeschooled way back when for religious reasons. So all of this stuff goes hand in hand. Emotional neglect. We talked about that a little bit. Um, And then as you've kind of explained some of what you're going through in therapy, um, people are being diagnosed with PTSD, mm. CPTSD, anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this perfectionism sometimes that comes, I have to be perfect. I have to live this to the standard. You know, for us, we had these 49 character qualities of Christ that came through the Bill Gothard program. 49? We 49. And we were expected to try to implement those into our lives. Um, so we have this perfectionism, but then we have grief and loss because things that we thought were going to be, or things we've realized weren't real, um, our identity crisis, 
Um, so you have that aloneness, being overwhelmed or afraid, distrustful. Who can I trust? Mm. You feel betrayed by your family, the very people who are supposed to love us the most, who are supposed to protect us and care for us. All of, you know, it's all been compounded. So it's compound trauma. Um, so the things that you experience at home, yes, you have religious trauma, but then there's also this whole other list of things that people are, are experiencing and feeling. And so I've already heard you say that you've tried so hard. Mm. um, to make those relationships work. And I see that over and over and over again. Um, you know, you can stay and work on the relationship, which is what you've tried to do Mm -hmm. as you've recognized some of the religious trauma has come from home. Mm -hmm. It's not just from the church. Yeah. It's It's from from home. (laughs) It's from home. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but you've, you place boundaries. Yep. Well, what are your other choices? Well, I can, if you're at home, you can leave home or leave your community, which Mm -hmm. sounds like you live in a different place. So you've done that. And then there's temporary or long-term estrangement. I mean, what are our options here? Yeah. And then your parents, they can reject you. They can deny your experience ever happened. They can get defensive and dig in. Well, we were, you know, Mm -hmm. we taught you the truth from the Bible. We had biblical truth and whatever. Um, They choose their principles over the person. They're yeah. choosing being right, choosing all of these things over, over what you need. Um, well, parents can admit that they made mistakes. Yeah. I've known a few parents who they start deconstructing before their adult children do, and they have to go to their adult children. And it, it's a beautiful situation when it happens that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't usually happen that way. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's been interesting with my dad specifically, because I remember when I was a teenager, he made me go on this stupid retreat. It was like a day retreat in the middle of the desert in a hot ass mm-hmm. room. It was so annoying, <laughs> but they were like doing like prayer circles and singing and whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And at one point he like gets up in the microphone and he's like, I just wanted to apologize to my daughter because I feel like I failed her. And at the time I was very mad. I did not accept his apology. (laughs) He wanted me to do it publicly and that didn't sit right with me. Um, I mean, it was good intentions. He was feeling. Appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. yeah. I do now at the time I was like, why don't you apologize to me in private? But Mm -hmm. say to my face, Um, I've always been this aggressive. And so I think that was a moment where I was like, but my dad has some capabilities and he has proven so, but that's, that's not always the case. And that pisses me off even more mm-hmm. like that. People don't have the same type of parent that c- would change their mind. I mean, my mother has never apologized to me and she's never mm-hmm. will. She's acknowledged that she hit mm-hmm. us a little too much in the mm-hmm. sense in the comparison sense, she's like, well, your cousin hits his kids much worse than I used to hit you. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is not, this is terrible. And you're justifying it. Yeah. 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 That's a, a form of justification for behaviors or, you know, that's what I, somebody said to me the other day of Rebecca, you're doing all this work trying to heal people, but when are, when's somebody going to be held accountable? Like when are the, the, the teachers and the pastors and the mm. people who wrote the books and the parents who swallowed it, hook, line and sinker, who's going to hold them accountable? And I'm like, they're children. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, I can't do it all. I want to, yeah. you know, I can't go into all the spaces. Um, but do you have any siblings? I don't know. Like, how oh. is it? <laughs> I'm the middle child. The middle, oh, child. Okay. My older sister, she's um my mother's favorite. She 
she is a very successful architect person, but she still lives at home because unmarried women are supposed to live at home with their parents. Be uh, under that umbrella of authority. Mm-hmm. Yep. She doesn't um, drink, not because she is convicted, but because mm-hmm. mommy said not to drink. She has mm-hmm. nothing really against it. I mean, my sister also holds a lot of resentment for me. Danielle, if you're listening, we talk about this, so whatever. Um, yeah, she says that I ruined her life because she had to go home and protect my mother from me. Isn't mm-hmm. that funny? I've always been a very fragile person. So what was I going to do? And I have a lead little brother who is much more rebellious than I ever was, but he's the youngest and he's the boy, so... He gets mm-hmm. to do whatever he wants. He never got kicked out of the house. He, mm-hmm. Nothing ever happens to him. I've accepted my lot in life. Um, so you said rebellious again. Yeah. What does it feel like in your body when you refer to yourself as rebellious? Um, I have a lot of pride in my rebellion. I really do. And most of it is probably just like this. Um, I overcame. I didn't fall into this. I... I did this. Like people, I have really high self-esteem. Um, I'm not an LA 10, as they would say, but you know, I think I'm pretty great. And people always ask me how I did that. And I say, well, I had very large mirrors on my closet doors and I would stare at myself and all the things that my mom said was bad about me. And I was like, mm, looks just fine to me. <laughs> mm. So I have a lot of pride in that sense of like overcoming, like you didn't get me. I didn't mm-hmm. fall into the trap. I became my own person and a lot of people would be surprised to know that look if I could go all the way back I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change yeah. a single thing about myself or my past. Mm-hmm. Because there's been a lot of redemption in it. Even as much as my mother still pisses me off. I mean mothers may do that forever. <laughs> yeah. Even healthy relationships. Yeah. You know, like a healthy relationship doesn't mean there's a there's no conflict or that you always agree. Right. It just means that you can come to a level of respect with one another. You handle it with dignity and respect for the other person. Right. And you speak, you speak to hear not speak to be heard until it's your turn. (laughs) Then Mm -hmm. it's your turn to be heard. Yeah. And my mother, she doesn't really believe in my disability, but she did enough to defend it against other family members, you know, which Mm -hmm. to me was a big milestone for her. Yeah. And I mean, I still am not forgetting anything that happened, but it still informs my future. Mm-hmm. But so what are the, when you're triggered, what are the thoughts that come to your brain? Breathe, chillax, think about what you're going to say, because I, my first instinct is anger. I'm an angry person and I'm very comfortable with anger. I'm not so comfortable with my other emotions. So I've had to, in therapy, learn Mm -hmm. how to react to be constructive. I'm a very Mm -hmm. constructive and strategic person. Mm -hmm. So when my family was calling me fat in my wedding dress before COVID Mm -hmm. happened or whatever, I was like, I just want us to all get to a place where we can just apologize to each other for making us feel bad Uh, after a huge argument. And then they were like, Mm -hmm. oh... I guess that sounds all right. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, this shit works. Therapy works. (laughs) So even as a child, was anger your go-to emotion? Oh, yeah. I was a thrower. I threw shit. 
I slammed doors, punched pillows. Yeah, I was very angry. What happens when you allow yourself to feel an emotion other than anger? I cry. <laughs> I cry a lot these days, especially. Yeah. This is like a therapy session. I really like <laughs> Sorry. it. I was like, sometimes we get in these patterns yeah. and I've recognized it for myself. And um, there's actually a book, you've probably read it. Um, and it helps us, but it's called, It Didn't Start With You. I have not read it, but it's going on my list. It didn't start with you. It's how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle. Oh yeah. And so in there, it talks about so often, um, and I was like, oh, dang it. The word, my old churchy word would have been convicted. Oh, um, yeah. But I, rec I recognized that there were these certain thoughts that I would, like things that I would say to myself when I would feel a big emotion, um, that those were my go-to ones since I was a child. Mm. And so how I was responding to my husband, what my husband was saying, which is what I thought he was telling me. That's not what he was intending. That's yeah. not what he was telling me, but because that was the, the emotion I was most comfortable with the thoughts, the, you know, the inner voice mm -hmm. that I was most comfortable with going to, it was a habit. Yeah. And I'm having to even now still relearn recognizing my husband did not intend for me to feel this way. When he said that, that was my child, my inner child mm -hmm. protecting myself. And so that's why I was asking you, what is a different emotion? Like, have you ever allowed yourself to experience a different emotion? Um, or does anger just always come on top of it? Because we get in these habits because that's what has protected you. That's yeah. what's helped you survive for so long is that anger when you may not recognize yourself if you feel grief or sadness or something else. Um, yeah, I'm still working on that grief one. That one's the roughest one for me. <laughs> yeah. Grief is rough. What are, what are you grieving more? Something that you thought would be or something that you've lost? Something that I've lost for sure. Would be, I don't live my life with expectations. Shit's too chaotic for that. But I've lost some things recently that have been pretty monumental. Mm. And faith... I mean, luckily for me, I've always been an avid reader, so faith wasn't that big of a thing for me to deconstruct because I just formed my own opinions and asked too many questions from the get-go. Mm -hmm. But loss of relationships as a result, that was the roughest part of deconstruction for sure. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. loss of community, the loss of like, even like the family structures, like knowing that my mother thinks that I'm going to hell, that's rough. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she thinks that anymore after I preached in a church, but she might because <laughs> I'm still a heathen in her eyes. <laughs> and you're still a woman who's preaching in church. So. Yeah. Luckily, my parents are down for that. Mostly because okay. my dad's oldest sister, she was a traveling pastor. So she just wasn't allowed to officiate weddings, which I don't know if she yeah. would have liked that anyways. But she yeah. could have led a church and stuff like that. So I was just primed to be this progressive little christian in america my parents yeah. don't realize it it's all their fault <laughs> <laughs> i hear and correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like i i hear pain in your voice when you say i ask too many questions oh yeah you find out a lot of things you don't want to know when you ask too many questions yeah mm-hmm 
is there such a thing as asking too many questions? Not in my personal opinion, but I, knowing from having asked so many questions, from continuing to ask the questions, from having a podcast where we have all these questions asked and answered and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. I have a deep empathy and sympathy or whatever for people who don't ask questions and who choose to sit in their ignorance because the pain that comes from the knowing, oh my God, I think it gave me fibromyalgia. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I get it. That's why I want to talk to him. Fibromyalgia is inflammation, right? You have a lot of inflammation in your body. Mm -hmm. That can be a trauma response. I know my At least from what I've read. Yeah. My therapist is the first one to insinuate that. And I was like, are you telling me that my mother did this to me? (laughs) One more thing. (laughs) Remember it's the system. The system, the system, the system. Yes. They bought into the system, but the root, the biggest Mm -hmm. problem, it's, it's the battle is with the system. Yes. It does become with your mother, but are you (laughs) able to, um, do any form of physical expression? Are you able to move, to do dancing, to do whatever that has been proven to release, whether it's through yoga, they have trauma-informed yoga now, mm-hmm. um, and through dance, even through forms of art. Yeah, um, I do a lot of the yogs okay. when I can. Yoga's hard enough with fibromyalgia. Nobody told me that. I thought yoga was supposed to be easy on the joints, but... Yeah, it can be intense, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned getting married. Oh yeah, I got married. How does your religious trauma show up in your marriage? It's an extension of family. You yeah. know, your spouse is yeah. It's funny. The first thing I actually thought about was the fact that my mother wore white to the wedding, but um, it, <laughs> which is uh, very much our relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really care because it was very expected at that point. But interestingly enough, my partner actually is ex-Mormon, so there's a lot of religious trauma in our relationship. But it makes sense. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it is interesting because especially surrounding sex, that that shit really lands when you get married as a woman. Because any amount of time, like you spend two weeks, a month, and you're just not into it, you just don't want to, you always have those intrusive thoughts that are like, he's going to leave me. I have to please my husband or I have to do is my duty is my wifely duty, which is why I don't use the word wife. Oh no. Mine was, uh, Jesus is standing over my bed smiling. Ah, that's worse. Oh, hell no. That was in one of the books. I, was it the one by wheat? I don't remember, but one of the books I was told to read on our honeymoon and that was, and so I couldn't get that image out of my brain. <laughs> this is why this is I refused to do premarital counseling at a church and why I was like, we're going to couples therapy instead. Cause I did not want to read some bullshit ass book that told me some bullshit ass things <laughs> on how to be a wife. So I we don't use those terms. <laughs> like intimacy after purity culture is dark comedy. Because it is so, so freaking painful that if you don't laugh, it'll kill you. Yep. My partner and I are very open with our friends about our sex life or lack thereof. Because with fibromyalgia, that's a whole different shit show. So we're very open. We're like anything kinky. We tell all our friends. We show them all the toys. Like we completely try to destigmatize it for others. So then we can destigmatize it to ourselves, which we're yeah. the two of us are farther along on that journey than a lot of our friends, which is fortunate. 
but Mm -hmm. it's been very interesting like in college i say i went through my hoe phase and i was always the one that everybody came out to with like i'm having sex with my boyfriend it's like that's fine nobody cares it i mean people care but it's fine who cares do you they felt safe telling you though yeah and that's not to say that these thoughts don't ever enter in my brain, especially as a disabled woman. It kind of ramps those things up like, oh, he's going to leave me because I can't have sex as often as he would like. Mm-hmm. And I'm hard to take care of. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's painfully fascinating. So what of what you just said is still connected to you, your spiritual abuse or religious trauma? Oof. all of it i mean the reason why i started my hoe phase i say that because i had four mm-hmm. sexual partners in four years um mm-hmm. and they each lasted around a month so not much of a hoe phase i did i started that journey because i was like i need to rid myself of this shame by force <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I took the path of least resistance and disconnected sex from emotion mm-hmm. and had sex. And it did rid me of lots of my shame and it made me appreciate my body more and blah, 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 blah. But I mean, what a drastic like mind shift to have to feel like you need to make because you're so indoctrinated. You're just like, well, now I got to flip it all over. Fuck mm-hmm. this. I mean, you've been promised that you're going to be, you know, a crazy vixen in the sheets. I mean, the moment you get married, that's it just flips on and that's what happens, right? Mm, apparently. That, the that's opposite happened even after my whole face. <laughs> that's what they tell us, you know. Yeah. I, but, I oscillate from, um, I'm married, I'm going to do shit too. Oh my gosh, she's going to leave me. <laughs> yeah. It's a funny situation. Yeah. But he has his own stuff too yeah and he's um very kind he's a much kinder person than i am he's very Mm. understanding Um, don't we marry our opposite often no (laughs) often i mean often enough to where it's a little pattern it's scary yeah enough about me uh everybody knows more about me now congratulations (laughs) yeah i'm an open book i don't care well Um, see i'm hearing i'm hearing some of the things i was how religious trauma surfaces in marriages is where I was going. And, and I hear some of the positive seems like are coming out of your marriage, out of your relationship now, which is greater intention. Mm -hmm. You're able to focus, you know, with intention, have a marriage, not just exist in the marriage, right. Have a greater patience. Mm -hmm. You have to have patience with yourself and with him. He has to have that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, and a deeper appreciation for one another. You both are going through the religious trauma recovery. Oh yeah. And so you have to have a deeper appreciation for what each person is experiencing. There's so many negative negatives. Like we've already talked about the intimacy struggles. Um, often, especially women can be in abusive situations. Mm-hmm. Um, as they've realized, Oh my word, I married in this system and I'm here and this is abusive. Um, a lot of misunderstandings and fights, a lot of it, questioning your relationship, confusion, I'm distant, we're Mm -hmm. not as close as we used to be. Um, but I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that your experience seems to have some upside to it that, yeah, I mean, it's been a lot of work. That's the part that people don't want to always not without fear. There are a lot of fear in those words too. Oh yeah. (laughs) From you. 
Yes, there's a it's a lot of work. It, I mean, most days before therapy, I'm just like, I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. Cancel. I don't want to go. I don't want to be sad today or whatever. It is it is very scary to face yourself. This is why I don't do I kind of refuse to do psychedelic drugs at this point in my life cuz like I'm not ready mm-hmm. to face myself that deep. I'm already pretty deep. I don't want to get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've I've had I've heard mixed reviews of that of some people it's worked well for them and others. Yeah, they, I don't want to the place they needed to be there. I have really bad luck so I don't want to be the one person who goes no. on mushrooms and loses their mind, you know. <laughs> I feel well, like I have a show the show that was a Netflix or Amazon came out with that show where they all go to group therapy and they get on psychedelics without realizing oh, yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. And that was a great show, but yeah. it was like, Oh, if that's what happens. Okay. We're good. Um, yep. <laughs> but it does, it does. I've heard of, I mean, I know people it's helped them. So I know. Yeah. And again, like that's great one for of those, PTSD. And that's one of those things people have to deconstruct because not everybody's okay with it. You know, they see it as drugs and yeah. not everybody has, has, I don't know. Well, we're a drug-friendly podcast, everybody, so get used to it. (laughs) Oh, no, no. What about your extended family? How is religious trauma? How are you seeing that revealed in your extended family? Oh, my gosh. I actually (laughs) had Did I step into it? Okay. (laughs) It's pretty intense. (laughs) Um, So my extended family, like my dad's cousins, we're all very close, which is really annoying when you plan a wedding because then you have 450 people invited and you can't cut anybody. Yep. So all of my cousins that live in the U.S. generally are all Mexican Catholic. So, you know, mm-hmm. Catholic when you need to be. And my dad's siblings, <laughs> um, so there's eight of them. My dad's siblings and my grandma, that and my mom's siblings and my grandma, the, the immediate, more immediate family, they're all generally Christian, except for one uncle. And he's considered the black sheep because he said, fuck this. I'm going to do what I want and be happy. Mm-hmm. And he's, yeah, him, his wife and his kids are seen as like these, oh my gosh, poor people. We hope they find Jesus. Oh my gosh. And they're also the people that mm-hmm. I'm the closest with. Hey, me too. <laughs> yep. Probably those black sheep of the family growing up are now the ones that have actually listened and cared and reached out and mm-hmm. not that we agree on everything. We don't, but right. they know what they knew what it was like. And they've, they've shown me more unconditional love than most other people have. Yeah. And I choose to do the same. Yeah. So it's pretty fascinating. Um, what do you think are like some first steps for people dealing with not just religious trauma, but like, Religious trauma and family dynamics as well. Mm. Well, get a therapist. Um. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's coaches too that are great. Um, but again, coaching, you need to make sure that there's some qualifications with your coach. Yeah. Um, and first steps. Part of it is seeing like we were talking about, about the system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the old, the Bible verse we've all been taught, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Well, we wrestle not against our flesh and blood, but against the system of power that has been placed. Amen. Um, And so it's these, again, yes, they are responsible for their own choices and behaviors and words that they are using towards you uh, or behaviors, but they honestly have bought into a system. Right. Um, 
And so first steps is find somebody who understands the religious trauma dynamic um, and how it does affect your families. There is a growing number of therapists who can get that. Um, there's not a whole lot, but there are some. Um, understand yourself. Mm. Um, again, that's why I wrote the book, because so many of us with those religious backgrounds, we don't understand our own feelings or needs mm. or emotions or wants or why do I need this? I don't know. I feel this, but is that okay? Um, it's learning yourself some self-care. Yeah. Um, learning how to listen to your body and um, recognizing that self-care is not a bad, evil word. Mm. Um, so finding someone you can talk to, find somebody who you can relate to, whether it's somebody on social media or a friend that you grew up with who's also recovering from this. Find somebody, don't do it alone. I did it alone and it freaking sucked. Yeah, do like, not do I, it alone. I could, I mean... I didn't have resources. There was nothing there. I, I had to do it alone, but now you don't and don't push yourself. Don't force it. So your family, unless they come to you and tell you, you know, talk about it, they probably are not going to understand. Yeah. You are going to look like the black sheep of the family. You are going to, you know, experience some of those things, not because you are, but because you don't think like them anymore. Mm -hmm. There you that bite model of authoritarian control. If you're not conforming, if you're going outside of accepted sources, you're having freedom of thought and emotion. Um, you have the freedom for that. Also remember that as a person, you have a right to a safe religious experience. Yep. Being controlled, being manipulated, being shamed or guilted because you no longer hold a specific belief. Um, that is not a safe religious experience. Mm. Um, people can still honestly and truly believe in hell, that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. They can believe all of these things and still treat you with dignity and respect. Amen. They can absolutely think you're wrong but they do not have to treat you like there's something wrong with you because you don't believe that anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do still identify as Christian. I work with people who do not. I have friends who do not. Um, but you can still maintain. It's like, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Mm -hmm. Those are types of statements or types of mentalities that you're learning to have in your life that I'm learning to have in my life. But again, that's a framework that our families probably don't have because we have to convince others to think our way. We have to make everybody believe the way we do. Yep. And if you don't, there's something broken and wrong about you. And so is the, the relationship worth saving can it be saved mm -hmm. if someone is volatile and or violent or malicious um is that a safe relationship for you or not yeah um and the hardest thing in the world one of the hardest things is to be estranged from the people that you love mm -hmm. the thing that makes it more difficult when you're the one who did it you had to make that choice. And remember that boundaries are there, not because your mom, your sisters, your brothers, your aunts and uncles, not because they have to keep it, but because you have to enforce it. Right. You have to be the one that says, you know, we're not going to be talking about, about vaccines at dinner. Remember we agreed to this beforehand. So we're going to like, let's detour this conversation. Oh, you know what? I've asked you three times. Now you're not adhering to this. 
um, I'm going to go ahead and leave. So sometimes taking those steps, it feels really bad and really wrong because yeah. again, we're not, we've been conditioned to think that that's wrong, especially if it's my authority, it's my dad. Mm. Um, but true love is also respectful. Yep. Amen. And for anybody who says honor your father and mother, well, I honor you by teaching you better. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, if you have liked today's therapy session, please feel free to hire Rebecca um, to give you your own, <laughs> your own coaching I'm not session. A licensed, yes, I'm not a licensed coaching. therapist, but yeah, I am yeah. a coach. There you go. <laughs> your own coaching session. Uh, yeah. Plug away. What do you have to plug? Buy your book, of course. Where can people oh, buy, buy it? Buy my book. Um, you can go on my website, which is RebeccaDrumsta.com or you can go to amazon and it's also walmart.com and barnesandnobles.com or you can ask your local bookstore support your local shop and ask them to order it too and um yeah that's about it so you can go to my website find more information about me i will be speaking at a conference from um pretty soon on religious trauma it is put out by the global center for religious research mm. they do not push one faith or another one. They don't discourage them either. Um, but they are covering religious trauma. They've been doing a lot of research. So they'll have a, some of the researchers will present as well as other professionals in the field. So if you want to learn more about religious trauma, that's at the end of March, you can go there. I'll post about it again on social media. Follow me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, um, yeah, just engage with me, ask me questions, send me emails, and if you are looking for someone who is a life coach, I would love to walk along with you on your journey. And if we're a good fit and we mesh, um, but if not, I would, if I know of a resource, I'll try to point you in that direction. Love it. Well, friends don't use today's information against me or do <laughs> I'm always ready for a good conflict. I don't care. And I do have one other book recommendation. Oh yes. Which is called adult children. Of emotionally immature parents. I've heard of this book. I've heard amazing yeah. things. Yes. And it's by Lindsay Gibson. And it's how to heal from distant rejecting our self-involved parents. So when you read this one, you'll be like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my God. So there you go. So two book recommendations. Well, three, including my own on today's episode. So I love it. Find them all, buy them all, support your local bookstores, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> friends, you can find us on speaking in church on Instagram. You can find me at Josie takes the world. You can find Spencer at Spence Rose, and you can email us at speaking in church at gmail.com um we're still looking for that uh conservative trumpian a QAnon person i would love to chat with your grandpa your uncle your brother anybody um warn them though that i am very light on my feet uh what is the sting like a bee whatever it is <laughs> okay. Float like a bird, sing like a bee. Thank you, yeah. Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, <laughs> that's me. I'm one-two punch. I'm real good, but I'm also nice. So whatever. Anyways, friends, if you want to buy us a coffee, you can do that at the link in our bio on our Instagram, and it'll pay for Spencer's diapers probably. So that'll be a nice little <laughs> present for her. Uh, that's it, friends. As I always say, stay woke or get woke. And as Spencer always says, Jesus loves you. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.